Welcome to the Doc Washburn Show, the show that talks about what you actually care about. The Doc Washburn Show streams live at noon Eastern, 11 a.m. Central, weekdays on the Podbean app, which you can download onto your smartphone. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N, and is available for download at Spotify, Apple, or wherever podcasts are available. The Doc Washburn Show is on Twitter and Facebook. You can email us at contact at docwashburnshow.com or call us at 866-609-3711. Hey, this is episode 34 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. It's Monday, November 29th. Yes, I was fired by one of the biggest radio companies in America, Cumulus Media, simply because I refused their vaccine mandate. Yes, it's obvious last November's presidential election was stolen. No, my old employer wouldn't let me say that on the radio. And yes, there's all kinds of evidence out there that a lot of people are having serious negative reactions to the vaccine. So this is a really different kind of talk show. We're unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. Now, before we get to the latest on Dr. Fauci, before we get to the two big trials getting underway today, let me just mention something to you. If you try to buy, if you have tried to buy a car recently, you realize there's such a chip shortage that you may have a hard time finding what you're looking for. Now, people I know have actually bought vehicles from hundreds of miles away from where they live. That's where RedRiverYourWay.com comes in. Red River Your Way is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom. The freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to. You can buy online, and they'll drive it to you, no matter where you are. Red River Your Way wants to make your car buying experience as easy and transparent as possible. That's why they've added technology to their website that puts you in complete control of your payment options, and allows you to complete the entire purchase process online. But don't worry, Red River experts are still here to help you every step of the way if you have any questions. Red River makes it so easy. As you browse their selection, you'll see each vehicle has a button called Explore Payment Options. Clicking that button guides you through a few easy questions that then create personalized payment options that you have full control over. All you have to do is adjust your preferences and all the math happens automatically so you can determine what monthly payment works best for your budget. Red River Your Way makes car buying online easy. Your whole car buying process is completely transparent. If you want to buy a car, truck, van, SUV, order online from the nationwide car dealer that believes in freedom. The dealer that will deliver your vehicle to your front door no matter where you live redriveryourway.com. You'll be glad you did. All right, that having been said, I do have a lot to say about the latest from Dr. Anthony Fauci coming up. He was on all five Sunday shows yesterday. But first, two big trials get underway today. One of them is pretty funny. The other is deadly serious. So let's tackle the funny one first, Jussie Smollett. Now, you remember Jussie. Jussie Smollett was one of the stars of a television program called Empire. Hardly any Caucasians had ever seen it before. And yet he spun a ridiculous story about leaving his expensive condo in Chicago at 2 a.m. to walk to a subway to buy a sandwich when the wind chill in Chicago was minus 18 degrees. Oh, wait, 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 wait. It gets better. As Jussie's story goes... Two white guys recognize him, 
from a show hardly any white people had ever seen at 2 a.m. in downtown Chicago with a minus 18 degree wind chill. And these two white guys just happened to have a noose and bleach on hand just in case they ran into anyone like Jesse Smollett. But wait, 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 wait. It gets better. They tell him. In the midst of deep blue Chicago, as they're wearing Make America Great Again caps, they tell him this is MAGA country. They pour said bleach on him, put said rope around his neck, but somehow he fought both of them off one-handed. Now, how do we know he only used one hand? Well, he never dropped his Subway sandwich. Now, look. I know Subway is the most popular sandwich chain in the world. I get it. I understand. A lot of rabid fans. But if you're like me, and you're thinking about getting attacked by two, two guys, the idea that you're only going to fight back with one hand because you want to hang under your Subway sandwich, well... Forgive me if my credulity was strained at the time. But not Kamala Harris. Her credulity wasn't strained. She, she proclaimed her complete and undying support for Jesse Smollett. She went out there in that Twitter thing, and she actually said, this is a quote now, Jesse is one of the kindest, most gentle human beings I know. I'm praying for his quick recovery. This was an attempted modern-day lynching no one would have to fear for their life because no one should have to fear for their life because of their sexuality or color of their skin. We must confront this hate. Now, you notice Kamala mentioned the word lynching. And Jesse claimed to have been almost lynched. And his good buddy here, then Senator Kamala Harris, just so happened to be trying to get some sort of anti-lynching law passed through Congress at the time. Wait a minute. You don't suppose? Nah. Also, ABC TV's Good Morning America's Robin Roberts conducted a very sympathetic interview with a guy, Jesse Smollett, who was obviously lying. I'm pissed off. What is it that has you so angry? Is it the, the attackers? It's the is attackers, it? but it's also the attacks. It's like, you know, at first it was a thing of like, listen, if I tell the truth, then that's it, because it's the truth. Mm -hmm. Then it became a thing of like, oh, how can you doubt that? Like, how do you, how do you not believe that? It's the truth. And then it became a thing of like, oh, it's not necessarily that you don't believe that this is the truth. You don't even want to see the truth. Come on, man. Now, that's just a clip from a 16-minute interview on Good Morning America with Robin Roberts. But there was no pushback. Liberals and the media. But I repeat myself. Overwhelmingly accepted his ridiculous story 
because they identified with him. They saw him as being one of them. So it didn't matter that his story was obviously too far-fetched to possibly be true. But wait, it gets better. It turns out the two Caucasians who allegedly attacked poor old Jussie at 2 a.m. in Chi-Town on a bitterly cold middle of the night were actually not Caucasians at all. There are a couple of brothers from Nigeria who turned out to be much blacker than most black folks born in America. They even provided proof that Jussie paid them with canceled checks. Can you believe it? Now, former NBA star Charles Barkley had some fun with that. He co-hosts a show called Inside the NBA on the TNT cable channel with Shaq, Kenny Smith, and Ernie Johnson Jr. What you're about to hear was from a show the four of them did on February 22nd, 2019. Now, Barkley begins this segment by predicting that the L.A. Lakers NBA basketball team won't make it to the playoffs that year. Ernie immediately wrote Charles's prediction on a post-it note, a tradition on the inside the NBA show, got it from his seat, walked over to the wall of other dubious predictions that Charles Barkley had made, or Chuck, as they call him on the show, all memorialized on post-it notes before Barkley found a way to bring the Jussie Smollett caper into the conversation on what is supposed to be a show about NBA basketball, and hilarity ensues. <laughs> so here, here we enjoy, pardon me, here we join this segment from Inside the NBA where Barkley begins by talking to the Lakers before he shifts into talking about Jussie. I don't think they want to get in the playoffs and play the Warriors to get stumped in the first round. That's what I truly believe. So I don't think they're going to make the playoffs. Well, they're going to make it competitive, but they will not get in the playoffs. Well, I'm going to say what no, you're he, say. He's writing, he's writing down your comment about the Lakers not making the playoffs okay. so it could go on the wall. And the Sacramento will. And Sacramento will. So don't you want to say what you had to say? Yeah, I, I, I was going to go that. with I was going to go with Houston as Ernie goes over there. I, I was going to talk about <laughs> <laughs> Ernie, what, yeah, what's the most ridiculous one over there that's still living that you would say has no chance of happening um two 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 black guys beat the black guy up and have a that's that's not it's not on here man uh the clippers well the clippers will not make the playoffs and uh what kind of hats they have on show Magus, Magus, Magus hat. Right, i think that's probably i think that's probably it okay the lakers will not make the playoffs the kings will is the latest edition go ahead kenny I can't Chuck. believe you, Chuck. You pay him with cash. Chuckster. You pay him with Chuckster. cash or you write him a check. Chuck. Never break. Hey, America. America. Chuckster. How? America. Let me just tell you something. What's that? Uh, do not commit crimes with checks. <laughs> Come on, man. You cannot. If you're going to break the law, do not write a check. 
Because you're writing a check that what? No. Behind can't cash. <laughs> Yo, man, you can not cash up. <laughs> hey, get cash, man. <laughs> I never used the ATM. Now, you can only, I heard you can only get $200 out of Charles, $500. Charles, stop, literally. Stop. Stop. <laughs> you're going to have to make a lot of stop to the ATM. But she said, Chuck, America. America, if you go not write checks when you commit illegal activity. Uh, I cannot believe that we completed, we touched them all right there. Circle the bag. Hey, oh. He just said he touched oh. every pillow. Oh. He just said the Lakers would make the playoffs. <laughs> Jesse said that. America. Hey, Jack, don't commit. Hey. <laughs> yes, Jesse, you wasted all that damn time and money. You, you know what you should have did? What's that? Just went out in the Liam Neeson neighborhood. You could have solved all your best problems. <laughs> all right. Charles Barkley's one funny guy. But wait. There's still more. Another black comedian on social media who goes by Idris TV, don't know what his full name is, actually recreated what he imagined to be Jesse Smollett's experience was like when he rehearsed his altercation with the two Nigerian brothers. Now, as an actor himself, Jesse Smollett has to give the two Nigerian brothers a lot of coaching. See, one of the problems is at first they sound like a couple of guys from Nigeria, and that just won't do. They need to sound like white rednecks. So it it it, it went something like this. Oh my goodness, is that him? Are we do we have to go now? We have to right go now, right now. Boom, for real, for real. Aren't you the man from the Empire Show? That movie? Yes. Got a problem? Yes. Um, um why do you doing around guys, here? Guys, guys, come on! The accent, more white, more racist, hillbilly. Oh, 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 oh! Okay. Hey, man. stop right there! What are you doing in our town? Aren't you that from Empire? Yes, I am. I'm the gate super. What's good? What's good? What the hell are you doing over here? Get more aggressive, more aggressive. That So Idris TV's Jesse Smollett character is really pleased that the two Nigerian brothers are quick studies, both of them. So then they discuss possible payment methods. That's kind of funny, too. What's that? Oh, that's good. You guys, that's got, good. you guys got Cash App? No, you told me you was on me Venmo. Venmo? I said Cash App. Oh, I get the Cash App. You right turned West Time Union me because I don't have my papers. <laughs> But the funniest take on the absurdity of Jussie Smollett's claims probably came from the famous comedian Dave Chappelle. Just afraid of being attacked. 
happens to the best. Don't ever forget what happened to that French actor. You know what I'm talking about? Juicy Smoulier. He's a very French, very famous French actor. Y'all ever heard of Juicy Smoulier? Juicy Smoulier is an actor from France. And he became famous on a show called Empire. One night, he was in Chicago late at night. He was the victim of a, a racist and homophobic attack. You see, Juicy Smoulier is gay and he is black, not just French. Oh, it's a crazy story. Apparently, when he was walking down the street late at night, two white men came out of the shadows uh, with MAGA hats on, beat him up, tied a rope around his neck, called him all kinds of niggas, and, and put some bleach on him and ran off into the night. This was like international news. And everybody was furious, especially in Hollywood. It's all over everybody's Twitter feed and Instagram page. Justice for Juicy and all this shit. The whole country was up in arms. He was talking about it all the time on the news. And, and for some reason, uh, African Americans, we were like oddly quiet. We were so quiet about it. The, the gay community started accusing the African-American community of being homophobic for not supporting him. What they didn't understand is that we were supporting him with our silence. Because we understood that this nigga was clearly lying. None of these details added up at all. He's walking down the street in Chicago and, and, and uh, white dudes come up to him and say, hey man, aren't you that nigger from Empire? Does that sound like how white people talk? No white people. They don't talk like that. Are you that from Empire? They would never say that. It sounds like something that I would say. If you're racist and homophobic, you're not even going to know who this is. You can't watch Empire. Black people never feel sorry for the police, but this time we even felt sorry for the police. Can you imagine if you was a police veteran taking this kid's police report? Okay, Mr. Smoulier, please tell me what happened. All right. 2 a.m. You left the house at 2 a.m. It's minus 16 degrees. Right. You were walking. You are walking. Where were you going? Subway. Sandwiches? That's when the men approach you? Did you see them? Do you have any? Okay, what do they have on? MAGA hats! MAGA hats on in Chicago? Excuse me one second, Mr. Smoot. Yeah. Frank, come here for a second. Find out where Kanye West was last night. <laughs> okay, that's Dave Chappelle. Now, almost three years later, Jussie Smollett 
is charged with felony disorderly conduct after law enforcement prosecutors said he lied to police about what happened in the early morning hours of January 29th, 2019 in downtown Chicago. He, of course, has pleaded not guilty. Jury selection began this morning. The jury's already been seated. Wow, that was fast. Disorderly conduct, a class four felony, carries a sentence of up to three years in prison. But I can't imagine he'll see a day behind bars, even if he is convicted. It'll probably give him community service or something like that. We'll keep an eye on that one for you. The other trial getting underway today is from a woman who used to be the girlfriend of Jeffrey Epstein, who, by the way, didn't kill himself. She was also allegedly the main person who helped to procure underage females for said Jeffrey Epstein. Now, most Americans have no idea how to pronounce her first name, which is spelled G-H-I-S-L-A-I-N-E. One of the reasons it's hard to understand how to pronounce this because the S is silent. So the correct pronunciation sounds almost like the male name, G-L-E-N-N. Her name is pronounced Galen Maxwell. Now, her trial gets underway today, and let me tell you a little bit about that. TheHill.com has kind of a kind of a summary, kind of an update came out yesterday afternoon. The trial of British socialite Galen Maxwell, who's accused of helping her close confidant Jeffrey Epstein recruit and sexually abuse underage girls, begins today, more than two years after the convicted sex offender's sudden death in prison. A jury of 12 individuals and six alternates has been impaneled U.S. District Court in Manhattan this morning where they'll hear testimony in what's expected to be a six-week trial. 59-year-old Galen Maxwell, who's been charged with six counts for allegedly helping Epstein facilitate a sex trafficking scheme, conspiracy to entice a minor to travel to engage in illegal sexual acts, enticing a minor to travel to engage in illegal sexual acts, conspiracy to transport a minor with the intent to engage in criminal sexual activity, transporting a minor with the intent to engage in criminal sexual activity, and conspiracy to commit sex trafficking of minors and sex trafficking of minors. Maxwell, who has pleaded not guilty to all charges, is facing a maximum of 70 years in prison, according to the Washington Post. Oh, I see, I see, I see, I see, I apologize. So jury selection for the case actually began earlier this month with Judge Allison Nathan questioning a pool of 231 potential jurors. Yeah, I thought that was, that was too fast this morning. I'll tell you something about the judge coming up in a little bit. I'll tell you now. She's an Obama appointee that Biden has now nominated for a promotion to a higher federal court. Just so you know. Anyway, the Hill.com says the highly anticipated trial comes more than two years after Epstein was found dead in his jail cell at the Metropolitan Correctional Center in New York. New York City Medical Examiner ruled in August 2019 Epstein died by suicide from hanging. In a July 2020 indictment, 
Prosecutors alleged Maxwell and Epstein during the 1990s exploited girls as young as 14, including by enticing them to travel and transporting them for the purpose of engaging in illegal sex acts. They said Maxwell played a critical role in the grooming and abuse of minor victims in New York, Florida, and New Mexico, adding that she acted knowing that Epstein had a preference for young girls. Four alleged victims are slated to testify during the trial using pseudonyms. According to a ruling from Judge Nathan cited by the Washington Post. Other witnesses will also be allowed to appear before the jury without discussing, without disclosing their true names publicly to safeguard their identities. Prosecutors are expected to make the case that Maxwell recruited young girls to meet Epstein by saying they would be financially compensated for their massages and that she worked to normalize the young girls taking their clothes off in front of Epstein at his home, according to the Washington Post. They will also argue that when Epstein started asking the girls to perform sexual acts, they felt trapped and unable to object to the request. Glenn Maxwell, however, has asserted that she used to work for Epstein and concentrated on managing his portfolio and properties across the globe. His lawyers, pardon me, her lawyers, Glenn Maxwell's lawyers, were reportedly called psychologist Elizabeth Loftus, a specialty in so-called false memories, to testify. Psychologist Loftus appeared before the jury on behalf of the defense during the trial of Harvey Weinstein, making the point that memories can be distorted. Well, how how that how that work out for Harvey? Not too good, huh? Ghislaine Maxwell is being held in a New York prison while awaiting trial after being denied bail a number of times. She's also facing two separate counts of perjury in connection with a sworn deposition, but a date for that trial has not yet been scheduled, according to the Washington Post. Now, a lot of people are wondering, since there were a lot of famous people who were very tight, very tight with Jeffrey Epstein. A lot of folks are wondering if anybody else is going to be uh, prosecuted. You know what I'm saying? And uh, when you look at the fact that Jim Comey's daughter is uh, reported to be the lead prosecutor, in Glenn Maxwell's child sex trafficking case, a lot of us are wondering how far the apple falls from the tree, for that matter. I mean, here's what the Business Insider says. Um, Jeffrey Epstein and Glenn Maxwell have brought plenty of familiar faces along with them into the spotlight including Prince Andrew and Bill Clinton, but one newcomer is 32-year-old Maureen Comey. She's the daughter of former FBI Director James Comey. Maureen Comey is one of the three lead prosecutors in the case against Glenn Maxwell, whose child sex trafficking trial begins today. Despite her father's history of dominating the news cycle, Maureen Comey 
has largely stayed, largely stayed out of the spotlight, instead maintaining a low-profile presence. But she's taken on major cases before Maxwell's trial, including the prosecution of Natalie Edwards, a self-proclaimed Treasury Department whistleblower, and Robert Haddon, a gynecologist accused of sexually abusing dozens of young women. Maureen Comey is also one of the lead prosecutors in the case against Jeffrey Epstein before he killed himself. No, he didn't kill himself. In August 2019, while awaiting trial. So here's what we know about the first daughter of law and order. Maureen Comey is currently an assistant U.S. attorney in Southern District of New York, one of the most prestigious federal prosecutors' offices nationwide. District covers Manhattan and the surrounding area, making it the center of prosecutions for financial crimes and other high-profile cases. Maureen Comey, Comey joined the office in 2015 as listed with one of three lead prosecutors handling the case against Glenn Maxwell, along with assistant U.S. attorneys Alex Rossmiller and Allison Gainfort Moe. The three of them also handled the case against Epstein, who was indicted in July 2019 for numerous sex crimes. For the case against Maxwell, they've, they're joined by assistant U.S. attorneys Andrew Rohrbach and Laura Elizabeth Pomerantz. Prosecutors have accused Maxwell of trafficking teenage girls for sex and sexually abusing them herself, along with Jeffrey Epstein. Maxwell's pleaded not guilty to the charges, has denied all misconduct. Her dad, Maureen Comey's dad, James Comey, was the head of the Southern District of New York in 2002 and 2003, before former President George W. Bush named him Deputy Attorney General. He worked in the private sector from 2005 until former President Obama named him FBI Director in 2013. Prior to joining the SDNY office herself in 2015, Maureen Comey worked for a year as a clerk for Loretta Preska, who at the time was a chief judge at the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of New York. Preska oversees a long-running defamation case that Virginia Jeffrey filed against Glenn Maxwell. Jeffrey has accused both Maxwell and Epstein of sexual misconduct, and the civil lawsuit has led to numerous unsealed documents related to Epstein's and Maxwell's conduct. Now, Virginia Jeffrey is the, 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 the pretty young blonde, and there, there are pictures of her with Prince Andrew all over the Internet, just to, uh, you know, in case her name sounded familiar to you. Um, now, I'm old enough to recall when James Comey said his wife and daughters were all big Hillary Clinton fans, okay? And how many times was Bill Clinton on the Lolita Express with Jeffrey Epstein? 26 times? So you don't think this prosecutorial team is actually going to drag the Clintons into this, do you? Just, uh, just a thought. Business Insider continues here. Two of the current criminal charges against Glenn Maxwell allege she perjured herself by lying in a deposition taken for Virginia Jeffrey's case, but those charges are said to be tried in a separate trial. Maureen Comey has also worked on another Epstein-related case, Nicholas Tartaglioni. 
Former police officer was arrested in 2016, accused of killing four men as part of a drug crime conspiracy. Prosecutors are seeking the death penalty, and he's been jailed for the past five years. Often getting into arguments with correctional officials, court records show, as his case has been delayed, Tartaglioni was briefly roommate with Jeffrey Epstein at Manhattan's Metropolitan Correctional Center in 2019 and was living with him when Epstein made his first suicide attempt in jail on July 23rd. Tartaglioni claimed to have helped Epstein after finding him unconscious. The jail was shut down earlier this year after uh, numerous scandals. That's cozy, isn't it? Jim Comey's daughter is also working on the case of the guy charged with murder who happened to be cellmate with Jeffrey Epstein. Wow. That's just, uh, that's mighty cozy. Mighty cozy. I, I don't know. I, I, I just... I don't think Glenn Maxwell is the only person who should be being prosecuted for being part of Jeffrey Epstein's misdeeds. Do you? I mean, that's nuts. That's nuts. Anyway, um... That having been said, so Anthony Fauci was all over Sunday, the Sunday TV shows yesterday, the Sunday morning shows. And we'll get to that in a moment, but let me ask something. As we chronicle official corruption and misdeeds of government officials on the Doc Washburn Show on a daily basis, let me ask you if you remember 2009. When uh, Nancy Pelosi shoved Obamacare down our throats. And they lied and called it the Affordable Care Act. All right. Are you like most Americans? Did this so-called Affordable Care Act, this Obamacare, actually make your health care more expensive? Does your health insurance premium feel like a second mortgage? Does your sky-high deductible prevent you from going to the doctor? Do your sky-high copays keep you from going to the doctor? Now, if you answered yes to any of those questions, you need to go to a website called myfamilyhealthplan.com. That's a website of my buddy Art Wilborn. You go to their, their homepage, myfamilyhealthplan.com. First thing you see is the words affordable plans. Save 30 to 50% on premiums. Personalized health coverage, low to no deductible, no copays. That sound like a deal to you? Are you thinking it's too good to be true? No, it's not. It's not. I've talked to plenty of people who say a lot of money on this. Right below that is a button that says schedule call now. And that's the button you need to click. You go to myfamilyhealthplan.com, you book a free consultation. My buddy Art Wilborn makes sure there are no gaps in your coverage. 
And as an extra added bonus, this personalized health coverage, make sure you don't have to cover anything that would offend your deeply held religious beliefs, like the A word, abortion. You don't have to cover that. This is not like Obamacare. It is the polar opposite. You save money, and you're not morally compromised at the same time. You save a lot of money. Save money on your insurance at myfamilyhealthplan.com. You'll be glad you did. You'll be glad you did. All right, let's, uh, let's look at Fauci. Let's look at Fauci. So Anthony Fauci was on Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan yesterday on CBS, one of the uh, Sunday morning chat shows on TV. And he was on with her for over an hour. But I'm going to be merciful to you and play you less than two minutes of what he said. So anybody who spins lies and threatens and all that theater that goes on with some of the investigations and the congressional committees and the Rand Pauls and all that other nonsense, that's noise, Margaret. That's noise. I know what my job is. Senator Cruz told the attorney general you should be prosecuted. Yeah. (laughs) I have to laugh at that. (laughs) I should be prosecuted. What happened on January 6th, Senator? Okay, so Anthony Fauci outs himself as a partisan liberal Democrat. I'll tell you what happened on January 6th. It was a setup by the feds. That's what happened. What happened on January 6th? A federal agent provocateur named Ray Epps kept on insisting that people get into the Capitol the night before, and people were shouting at him, Fed, Fed, Fed. And he was on the FBI's most wanted list of 20 people they were looking for about January 6th for several months until they finally figured out, oh, wait, he's one of us. Now they act like they never heard of him. That's what happened on January 6th. Lies? You talk about lies? Rand Paul's not the liar, pal. You're the liar. You testified under oath repeatedly repeatedly that your agency did not fund gain-of-function research in Wuhan, China. You lied. The NIH has since admitted you did fund gain-of-function research in China through the EcoHealth Alliance, a guy named Peter Dajak. Uh, coming up, I got audio from Peter Dajak from 2016 explaining exactly what they did and how they did it. But here's more from Fauci. Do you think that this is about making you a scapegoat to deflect of course. From President Trump? Of course. You have to be asleep not to figure that one out. Well, there are a lot of Republican senators uh, taking aim at this. I mean, That's okay. I'm just going to do my job. And I'm going to be saving lives, and they're going to be lying. It seems another layer of danger to play politics around matters of life and death. Exactly. Exactly. And to me, that's that's unbelievably bad 
because all I want to do is save people's lives. And I mean, anybody who's looking at this carefully realizes that there's a distinct anti-science flavor to this. So if they get up and criticize science, nobody's going to know what they're talking about. But if they get up and really aim their bullets at Tony Fauci, well, people can recognize there's a person there, so it's easy to criticize. But they're really criticizing science because I represent science. That's dangerous. To me, that's more dangerous than the slings and the arrows that get thrown at me. And if you damage science, you are doing something very detrimental to society long after I leave. All right. New York Post. Ted Cruz, Rand Paul, Rip Fauci over I represent science claim. Senators Rand Paul and Ted Cruz blasted Dr. Anthony Fauci again on Sunday after the White House chief medical advisor accused his critics of being anti-science. In an interview with CBS Face the Nation, moderator Margaret Brennan mentioned legislation introduced by Republicans that would limit or halt federal funding for so-called gain-of-function research in which viruses are modified to increase their transmissibility, transmissibility and virulence. Fauci described the issue as a political football and decried what he called a lot of misinformation, disinformation, and outright lies. Quote, anybody who spins, lies, and threatens in all that theater that goes on with some of the investigations and the congressional committees and the Rand Pauls and all that other nonsense, that's noise. I'm just going to do my job, and I'm going to be saving lives, and they're going to be lying. Cruz, Republican Texas, Rand Paul, Republican Kentucky, have both accused Fauci of lying to Congress about National Institutes of Health funding of -of gain-of-function research in Wuhan, China, where the coronavirus is thought to have originated and where some believe it accidentally leaked from a lab. Last month, Cruz called on Attorney General Merrick Garland to appoint a special prosecutor to investigate Fauci after the doctor claimed the NIH did not fund gain-of-function research, contrary to the agency's later admission. When asked about Cruz's move on Face the Nation yesterday, Fauci told Brennan, I have to laugh at that. I should be prosecuted. What happened on January 6th, Senator? Cruz responded on Twitter calling Fauci an unelected technocrat who has distorted science and facts in order to exercise authoritarian control over millions of Americans. Cruz wrote on May 11th, Fauci testified before a Senate committee that the NIH has not ever and does not now fund gain-of-function research in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. On October 20th, NIH wrote they funded an experiment at the Wuhan lab testing of spike proteins naturally occurring bat coronaviruses circulating in China were capable of binding to the human ACE2 receptor in a mouse model. That is gain-of-function research. Cruz went on saying Fauci's statement and the NIH's October 20th letter cannot both be true. The statements are directly contradictory. No amount of ad hominem insults parroting Democrat talking points will get Fauci out of this contradiction. Cruz concluded by calling on Fauci 
to address the substance in detail with specific factual corroboration or DOJ should consider prosecuting him for making false statements to Congress. Rand Paul, a doctor and a senator, responded on social media to another part of the Face the Nation interview in which Fauci told Brennan, anybody who's looking at this carefully realizes that there's a distinct anti-science flavor to this criticism. So if they get up and criticize science, nobody's going to know what they're talking about. But if they get up and really aim their bullets at Tony Fauci, well, people could recognize there's a person there. So it's easy to criticize, but they're really criticizing science because I represent science that's dangerous. Rand Paul went out there on Twitter and said, the absolute hubris of someone claiming they represent science, it's, it's astounding and alarming that a public health bureaucrat would even think to claim such a thing, especially one who has worked so hard to ignore the science of natural immunity. The Biden administration has repeatedly stood by Fauci amid the criticism from Republicans, and Fauci denied Sunday that he had thought of resigning at the height of the pandemic last year amid criticism from members of the Trump administration. Just so you know. Just so you know. But I got more. You know, Fauci has a long habit of contradicting himself. And I, I believe it's my duty to share some of that with you. It's a couple of minutes. People should not be walking around with masks. Let me just state for the record that masks are not theater. Wearing a mask might make people feel a little bit better. Masks are protective. Wait, 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 wait. Which is it? Which is it? And we, but it's not providing the perfect protection that people think that it is. There has not been any indication that putting a mask on and wearing a mask for a considerable period of time has any deleterious effects. There are unintended consequences. People keep fiddling with the mask and they keep touching their face. Then can you get some schmutz sort of staying inside there? Of course. Wait, which is it? You do not need to wear a mask indoors if, in fact, you've been vaccinated. But good that you're vaccinated, but in a situation where you have people indoors, particularly crowded, you should wear a mask. Sorry, I got to turn the uh, the ringer off of my phone. I'm I'm not good with that. I apologize. Here's more from the uh, the lying prevaricating Fauci. So even if you are vaccinated, you should wear a mask. If in fact you are vaccinated, fully vaccinated, you are protected and you do not need to wear a mask. Wait, 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 wait. Which is it? Which is it? Outdoors or indoors. When the children go out into the community, you want them to continue to wear masks. You know, if you look at, at, at children outside, particularly when they're with the family, uh, walking down the street, playing a game or what have you, don't have to wear a mask. The, 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 the pediatric, the Academy of Pediatric actually makes that recommendation that children should be wearing masks uh, from two years old onward. And you're asking now if your child is a member of your household, can you walk outdoors with your child? 
without a mask? According to that chart, the answer is yes. But the child can't, not to beat it, yeah. beat it to death. Yeah. Yes, yes. Because okay. now okay. the CDC says, I mean, I think I've got this right. One mask is better than zero masks. Two masks is better than one mask. But you don't have to have double masks. That's uh, the voice of Savannah Guthrie at the Today Show. Is, is that right? I mean, you know, it became clear that cloth coverings that you didn't have to buy in a store that you could make yourself were adequate. And then you wanted to fit better. So one of the ways you could do it, if you would like to, is put a cloth mask over, which actually here and here and here where you could get leakage in is much better contained. Are you a double masker, Dr. Fauci? Look like you are. <sighs> Savannah Guthrie comes back to take another bite of the Fauci apple. A lot of folks uh, are hearing now about double masking, wearing two masks or trying to get one of those N95 medical grade masks. Do you believe that that's advisable and makes a difference? You know, it, it, it likely does because, I mean, this is a physical covering to prevent uh, uh, droplets and virus to get in. So if you have a physical covering with one layer, you put another layer on, it just makes common sense that it likely would be more effective. Look, it's all about control. It's never been about your health. That's why they're going nuts over this uh, Omicron variant out of South Africa. When the doctors down there say, look, we got four people fully vaccinated. The Omicron uh, variant presents as they have mild cold symptoms. I mean, isn't that the kind of coronavirus you'd want a mild cold this is all about punishing africa especially south africa only six percent of the people are vaccinated so uh, pfizer's not making nearly enough money out of that right Fauci contradicts himself again. There are many people who feel, you know, if you really want to have an extra little uh, bit of protection, maybe I should put two masks on. There's nothing wrong with that, but there's no data that indicates that that is going to make a difference. And that's the reason why the CDC has not changed the recommendation. But that didn't stop him from telling Savannah Guthrie, oh, definitely two masks. Absolutely. Absolutely. So... The NIH funded gain-of-function research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, Wuhan, China. That is the research that makes viruses more transmissible. They did it through an organization called EcoHealth Alliance. Peter Dajak is the head of EcoHealth Alliance. And back in 2016, back in 2016, he spoke at the New York Academy of Medicine. I've got a... Uh, 29-second clip in which he explains exactly what they were doing. 
We found other coronaviruses in bats, a whole host of them. Some of them looked very similar to SARS. So we sequenced the spike protein, the protein that attaches to cells. Then we, well, I didn't do this work, but my colleagues in China did the work. You create pseudoparticles, you, look, you insert the spike proteins from those viruses, see if they bind to human cells. And each step of this, you move closer and closer to this virus could really become pathogenic in people. And that's exactly what they did. That's exactly what they did. The virus became pathogenic in people. They got what they wanted. They got what they paid for. Now, the great Glenn Beck has done some digging and I guess somebody leaked this this document to him from six years ago about how the government co-owns the Moderna vaccine with Moderna. Have you heard about this? At two minutes and 18 seconds is 153 pages of the confidential agreement between Moderna and the U.S. government. And it goes back to 2015. Jason, what was happening in 2015? Uh, Frankenstein coronavirus. That's right. The same time Dr. Barrick and Dr. Xi published their paper on the new Frankenstein coronavirus. In fact, let's skip down to page 104. It shows that the NIH and Moderna were collaborating with Dr. Barrick. Wow. His signature is on page 106 of the material transfer agreement. But let's get back up to the top of this specific agreement. The NIH appears to be transferring the mRNA tech to Dr. Barrick. But look what they want to make clear. Quote, mRNA coronavirus vaccine candidates developed and jointly owned by the NIAID and Moderna. I'm sorry. I mean, I've seen ulterior motives before, but usually you see them coming. Did you know that the government co-owns the vaccine? Oh, by the way, this is not part of the Trump's thing. This is, this is not part of that. This is 2015. The same government that is now mandating its use owns the vaccine. Is there even a precedence for this? The inventor of the polio vaccine, I know, refused to patent it. The distribution was privately funded. The flu vaccine is an open source with global collaboration. You would think that this wouldn't be patented and held by the United States government. As of April, our government has paid Moderna $6 billion to support the vaccine that they co-own. So if we own 50% of it, are we getting paid? Are we getting a discount? Where's that money going to? And if we're not getting money, why the hell would we, why would, why would we have this agreement? Wow. Question kind of answers itself, doesn't it? Question kind of answers itself. So you've got 
Fauci saying, I represent science, okay? And if anybody is questioning me, he's questioning science, right? Which is an absurd thing to say because the history of real science has been all about questioning, right? Remember the story you may have heard when you were a kid about uh, Galileo, how almost all of the so-called real scientists rejected him because he was questioning settled science about the nature of the universe itself. Remember? Ever heard of Galileo? No, 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 no. I'm not talking about Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen. I'm talking about the real guy. Questioning established science. Now, let me tell you what established science was in 1978. Leonard Nimoy, the guy that played Mr. Spock in Star Trek, 10 years later, did a television special called The Coming Ice Age. The Coming Ice Age. Now, I checked, and one of the uh, scientists on the special with him is still around, still a so-called climate scientist, even though 43 years ago he would swear to you that we're on the verge of the coming ice age. Yeah. You wouldn't want to question established science, would you? At least eight times in the past million years, it has advanced and retreated with clockwork regularity. If we are unprepared for the next advance, the result could be hunger and death on a scale unprecedented in all of history. What scientists are telling us now is that the threat of an ice age is not as remote as they once thought. During the lifetime of our grandchildren, Arctic cold and perpetual snow could turn most of the inhabitable portions of our planet into a polar desert. In 1977, the worst winter in a century struck the United States. Arctic cold gripped the Midwest for weeks on end. Great blizzards paralyzed cities of the Northeast. One desperate night in Buffalo, eight people froze to death in marooned cars. Pat Bushnell was on the road that night. Traffic just absolutely stopped. I was afraid of being stuck in the car all night long with the uh, cold and the wind running out of gas. And then what? I remember that winter of 1977. I remember the blizzards. I remember it snowed all the way down to Miami, Florida, and the Bahamas, and people didn't know what to do because they didn't have jackets. I think that if we had to go through a real bad winter, just like we just went through, I think we'd have to think about moving someplace else. Move where? The brutal Buffalo winter might become common all over the United States. Climate experts believe the next ice age is on its way. According to recent evidence, it could come sooner than anyone had expected. And 
weather stations in the far north, temperatures have been dropping for 30 years. Seacoasts, long free of summer ice, are now blocked year-round. According to some climatologists, within a lifetime, we might be living in the next ice age. Of the nine planets in our solar system, only Earth has conditions favorable to human life. <laughs> the coming ice age. Now, Anthony Fauci would tell you, because he was in the government already back then. You'll make a big mistake when you criticize settled science. I represent science. Well, who represented back in 1978? Leonard Nimoy and his uh, merry band of, quote, scientists, unquote. The coming ice age. All right, I mean, if that, if that doesn't tell you how ridiculous these people are, I don't know what will. Oh, wait. <clears throat> wait a minute. Wait a minute. Pardon me. Uh, maybe I do know what will. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. It's the Doc Washburn Show Tweet of the Day. All right, Doc Washburn Show Tweet of the Day brought to you by... RedRiverYourWay.com, where you can buy the truck, van, SUV, car, the way you want to. The nationwide car dealership that believes in freedom, RedRiverYourWay.com. Brings you today's tweet of the day. And it's from Adam Baldwin, the actor that's not related to the other Baldwins. His tweet of the day says, stop calling it covid COVID is a word created to trigger fear. A word conceived to make something very commonplace sound menacing, frightening, and sinister to you. It's COVID, the word stands for coronavirus disease, okay? Now, coronavirus is just another term for the common cold. They've been around for thousands of years. You've only been afraid of it since they started calling it COVID. So stop using their fear word and stop calling it COVID. Call it what it is, a cold. And you'll feel much better. That's today's Tweet of the Day, brought to you by our friends at RedRiverYourWay.com, where you have the freedom to buy the car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to online, and they'll drive to your front door. All right. As Joe Biden continues consistently over and over and over again to wear a mask, walking around outdoors, and then take it off when he gets very, very close to people to talk to them. As Joe Biden continues to cough into his hand and then shake hands with people. As Joe Biden and his handlers continue to keep our southern border open. But the racist restricts travel from eight different African nations to the USA. See, when, 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 when Trump announced a travel ban on China, Joe Biden said that was racist, that was xenophobic. But not now. Not now. By the way, I've got... Um, 
I got one more for you. Now, the governor of Arkansas, Asa Hutchinson, probably is not of interest to the over 70% of people who download the Doc Washington Show podcast because he's never going any further. But in his mind, he thinks he is, which is why he loves to get on CNN. He loves to get on MSNBC. He loves to get on the uh, Sunday morning talk shows and pontificate about how wrong other Republicans are. Now, he never criticized Democrats. He even said recently, I don't want to criticize the president, referring to Biden, who I do not I do not call him the president. I call him usurper Biden. But anyway, uh, Dana Bash on CNN had got, uh, Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, we call him asymptomatic Asa, on yesterday, and it went something like this. Oh, wait, do I need to turn it back up? Yes, I do. Here we go. Let me ask you about the state of your party, the Republican Party. I want you to listen and watch this video of Republican Congresswoman Lauren Boebert making a racist joke about Democratic Congresswoman Ilhan Omar. Okay, first of all, Dana Bash is lying. Lauren Boebert did not make a racist joke about anybody. Ilhan Omar is a terrorist sympathizer. She laughs that people would be concerned about Al-Qaeda. She conducted immigration fraud by marrying her brother so she could get him over here from Somalia. Dana Bash, CNN, is a liar. Now, the question is, is Asa Hutchinson too stupid to realize she's lying or they're just on the same team? I don't know, but the result is the same. Left. And there she is, Ilhan Omar. And I said, well, she doesn't have a backpack. We should be fine. I looked over and I said, oh, look, the Jihad Squad decided to show up for work today. Okay, so House Minority Leader Jeff McCarthy made Lauren Boebert apologize to Ilhan Omar. And that was a huge mistake because it's never enough. It's never enough. They sense that as weakness, so they're going after her big time. Now, there are a number of Democrats in the House of Representatives who've done all kinds of horrible things, said all kinds of horrible things, even encouraged violence against Americans. None of them have ever been forced to apologize Lauren Boebert did nothing wrong. But people like Kevin McCarthy, House Minority Leader, and the hapless Arkansas governor, asymptomatic Asa Hutchinson, insist that Republicans be held to a different standard. House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy finally released a statement about this yesterday. He said he called Boebert, encouraged her to meet with Omar, but notably did not publicly condemn what she said. And he's actually never publicly condemned Congressman Paul Gosar for tweeting an animated video of himself killing a Democratic congresswoman. So do you think McCarthy should be publicly condemning this kind of behavior? Do you think Nancy Pelosi should be publicly condemning calls for violence from people like uh, Maxine Waters. Do you think Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer should be condemning 
Kamala Harris raising bail money for for violent rioters last year. See, that never comes up. Never comes. But again, this is CNN. This is CNN. The network that says that uh, an SUV plowed into people Sunday a week ago in Waukesha, Wisconsin. Right? Not... uh, Not uh, a Black Lives Matter, black supremacist maniac who never should have been out of jail in the first place. Anyway, um, Aza likes being invited on CNN. Wouldn't be surprised if he's angling for a uh, job as one of their commentators after he leaves the office as governor of Arkansas a little over a year from now. So, of course, he's going to play ball with the liars. I do. I think whenever even in our own uh, caucus, our own members, if they go the wrong direction, I mean, it has to be uh, called out. Uh, It has to be uh, dealt with, uh, particularly whenever it is uh, breaching the civility, whenever it is crossing the line in terms of violence or 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 increasing the divide in our country. So um lauren bobert didn't call for violence neither did paul gosar about posting a cartoon one of the things that's really important to us in the future is increasing the civil debate yeah so how do you uh propose democrats do that asa uh and civil discourse and we've got to look for ways that we can bring people together and not divide and certainly along racial lines i think uh, this racial lines there's nothing about racist for noticing that Ilhan Omar is a terrorist sympathizer. Last week, uh, our justice system gave two very good verdicts uh, that indicated that we can hold people accountable whenever they uh, go after somebody because of their race or uh, whenever they take the law into their own hands. So uh, let's let's look for ways that we bring people together and let's decrease that divide. What did the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict have to do with holding people accountable for um, taking the law into their own hands or going after people because of their race. If the Kyle Rittenhouse case had anything to do with uh, going after someone for taking law in his own hands, Gage Grosskreutz should be indicted for attempted murder against Kyle Rittenhouse. That hasn't happened. Aza's not bright enough to figure that out. No, I've met the guy. Remember, I, I did a local talk radio show in Little Rock, Arkansas for over seven years. I met the guy. I know. It would not occur to him, even though he's been an attorney for many, many years, to say, hey, why don't they prosecute the guy who pointed the gun at Kyle? The guy that Kyle didn't shoot until Gage Grosskreutz pointed the gun at him. That's not on uh, Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson Rhinos. That's not his radar screen. I'm told all of his advisors are liberals. That's not going to occur to any of them. It's just not. All right, that having been said. That that, that having been said. I mean, there's... uh, There's a lot. 
There's a lot we still have to get to. The great John Hayward over at Breitbart has a thread over on Twitter, which I need to share with you. He says, all government spending is a tax increase. The taxes always hit the middle class hardest. The only question is when and how the new taxes will be extracted from your wallet. Right now, you're paying through inflation and you ain't seen nothing yet. He says, it's remarkably easy to trick people into forgetting that nothing is free. It's a lesson we all learn as children. But politicians manipulate adults into forgetting it. Intelligent people become gullible fools when the offer of free stuff comes from political hucksters. The big swindle of the past few decades was tricking people into thinking big government will provide oceans of free stuff forever by simply racking up the national debt. Nothing has to be paid for, is what they tell us. We'll just print more money, maybe punch out some trillion-dollar platinum coins. Of course, the big spenders were always going to turn on their gullible marks eventually and announce the gigantic deficits they accumulated must now be repaid with tax increases. Oh, so sorry. Really hate to do it, but it would be irresponsible not to raise your taxes. But long before those titanic, titanic bills were handed to you and your children by politicians who fatten themselves to Baron Harkonnen levels on deficit spending, inflation was bound to kick in. It's a way of taxing the middle class to death with no fingerprints on the murder weapon. Madcap government spending and insane deficits don't make anything free, not even the short term. They simply create the most inefficient, wasteful, corruption-prone system imaginable for shoving assets and resources around. Lies and illusions become our real currency. Deficit-fueled free stuff giveaways are bleeding all the value out of our economy, as illustrated by the declining value of our currency. So much value is simply stolen by the political class. As you can see from trillion-dollar so-called infrastructure schemes, they don't actually build anything. One way or the other, we in the middle class pay for everything eventually. Socialist giveaways and entitlement for us just mean giving us, giving us pennies in value today and stealing dollars from us tomorrow by hook or by crook. Direct taxes, indirect tra- taxes, inflation, for all the ignorant, sneering lefties did about trickle-down economics over the past 40 years, it's really their socialist system that's based on trickle-down mechanics. Trickle-down theft and taxation. The trickle is becoming an avalanche under Biden's policies. The best way to allocate scarce resources and labor is for profit-seeking, risk-taking private actors compete for them. The absolute worst way is for politicians to give them away and figure out how to pay for them later, possibly decades later. These deficit blowouts and free stuff schemes are all about trickery and deception, lying to people about what things are really worth, creating elaborate payment systems that keep us all in the dark about who pays for what and how much anything really costs. Of course, politicians like it that way. 
Socialist schemes give them endless opportunity to leech money from the rest of us, pay off their friends, and get filthy rich without contributing anything of value themselves. Parasites thrive in the murkiest of economic waters. One way or the other, you'll pay to make the politicians rich and powerful, my middle-class friends. Taxes and regulatory burdens on business are passed down to you. Today's free stuff deficits become tomorrow's tax hikes. Printing money sucks your blood through inflation. And he concludes, and you'll never be asked to consent to any of it. You'll never be honestly told what the real costs are. The parasites will look you right in the eye and chirp, it costs zero, it's all free. You won't be allowed to say no when it starts coming out of your wallet. That is the great John Hayward over at Breitbart.com. And that's uh, that's the truth, y'all. That's the truth. All right, Jesse Kelly. Jesse Kelly is a nationally syndicated uh, radio talk show host out of Houston. I'll tell you what. He is uh, throwing down today. Let's check this out. Jesse Kelly says, walk with me through a little made-up story. Let's say there was a big pro-life rally in Detroit, but it got way out of hand, and those pro-lifers started looting and burning things. Let's say it went on for days, and a black Black Lives Matter guy shows up in Detroit with a weapon. Let's say he stands guard at one of the car dealerships the pro-lifers want to burn down. Suddenly, those pro-lifers attack him on camera. Keep in mind, this is all captured on camera. Let's say he uses his weapon to defend himself, and two pro-lifers end up dead. Now, pause this story for a moment. How do you think this man would be handled? Let's just skip right past the wouldn't-be-charged obvious stuff and think about how he'd be handled. Book deal? No question. Courtside seats at LeBron's? As LeBron's guests at a Lakers game? Absolutely. Definitely. Fluffy interviews on almost every news station? Almost undoubtedly would be drafted to run for office. He would speak at the next Democrat National Convention. They build him a statue or two. But let's just say for the sake of argument that he is put on trial and he gets acquitted. And let's say in this scenario that we had a Republican president and this same GOP president had made several statements about out-of-control black nationalists, naming this guy. And let's say in the wake of the trial, every major right-wing news outlet continued calling him a racist black nationalist and warning about all the anti-pro-life bigotry out there. Let's say this goes on for a couple of days. And then let's say some crazy, violent white guy with a Facebook profile showing him in a MAGA hat gets in his pickup truck and mows down 50 black people in a parade. Multiple dead. Now take a moment, an honest moment, And tell me what would have happened by now. Imagine the media coverage. 
it would still lead every program. The Republican president would be impeached over it. Don't argue with me. You know he would. There would be congressional hearings already scheduled. The FBI would already have multiple people in custody. Friends and family members of the killer will be fired already. Their children wouldn't be able to attend school. CNN would have a news crew on the mother's lawn, his mother's lawn. City after city would be up in flames from the rioting and looting. Multiple people would be murdered in the chaotic aftermath that followed. I'm not wrong about any of this. In fact, I'm probably underselling it. I could see Democrat-controlled areas flat-out criminalizing wearing Republican gear. And I didn't lay all this out to show hypocrisy or double standards. That's a waste of time. Everyone knows that already. I laid this all out so you could see just how powerful the system is. The things they do to protect the people viewed as being on their side, Jesse Smollett, are endless. The things they do to destroy anyone viewed as an opponent are endless. Remember this made-up scenario the next time some communist whines about so-called dangerous rhetoric or snarky jokes. Remember it well. We're not playing the same game. Not even close. They're playing to win. We're doing politics. That's all. That's it. And that's the great Jesse Kelly out of Houston, Texas, syndicated talk show host. He could have uh, he could have put Governor Ace Hutchinson's name in there because uh, that's what that's what Asa is doing, playing right along with his Democrat minders. And Jesse Kelly's thread on Twitter about let's just say this happened about not only the double standard but what game the Democrats are playing, what game the Republicans are playing. That's a perfect lead-in to the great Victor Davis Hanson. Over to American greatness. His, uh, his column today entitled A Tale of Two Cities, Kenosha versus Waukesha. Subtitle of Media's Blatant Lies Amount to Racial Arson. Now, Victor Davis Hanson is a distinguished fellow of the Center for American Greatness and the Martin and Illy Anderson Senior Fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution. He's an American military historian, columnist, former classics professor and scholar of ancient warfare. He's been a visiting professor at Hillsdale College since 2004. And uh, he's written some remarkable books not the least of which is the Second World Wars, how the first global conflict was fought and won. His column today at amgreatness.com, A Tale of Two Cities, Kenosha versus Waukesha. And here's what he says. Both Wisconsin towns, Kenosha and Waukesha, about 50 miles apart by car, were the recent sites of multiple deaths. The violence in both cities made national news. Yet in contradictory ways, both reflected the common themes of Americans' current legal, media, and societal corruption. The relevant public prosecutors in both 
were in the news for alleged ideological bias. Specifically, they habitually calibrated the charging, indicting, and trying, or not, of defendants through ideological lenses and community pressure rather than on the basis of the facts and the law. Kyle Rittenhouse was a 17-year-old armed youth who volunteered to protect business properties at the height of the August 2020 arson riots and looting in Kenosha. He was pursued and attacked by three members from a larger group who chased the armed youth, presumably either to disarm, injure, or kill him, or perhaps all three. Rittenhouse variously was assaulted, kicked, and had a firearm pointed at him. In reaction, he fatally shot two of his pursuing attackers and wounded a third. Kenosha prosecutors reviewed videos of the altercations. They saw clearly that Rittenhouse was running away from his assailants. He was variously rushed by one assailant, kicked by another, and struck with a skateboard by still another. Again, a final pursuer pointed a gun at him at close range. No matter. The Kenosha District Attorney's Office charged Rittenhouse with several felonies, including two first-degree homicide charges. All four whom Rittenhouse fired at, whether he missed, wounded, or fatally shot, had lengthy arrest records. Three were convicted felons. The fourth had a long arrest record. Given the lengthy and quite horrific rap sheet of Rittenhouse's first attacker, Joseph Rosenbaum, including multiple counts of pedophiliac rape, he raped little boys. It's difficult to understand why the latter was not in jail. He had been released earlier that day from a mental facility to which he had been committed after a failed suicide attempt. The common denominator to the various prior convictions of his other three assailants was that they should have led to consequences far worse given that many of their arrest charges were dropped or bail was sometimes waived or plea bargaining turned serious charges into merely bothersome ones. The release of violent offenders on little or no bail seems now to be thematic in Wisconsin. Shortly after the August 2020 shootings, the media, Joe Biden, and most of the left-wing commentariat had claimed Rittenhouse was a white supremacist even though there was no evidence of such a libel then or now. Remember, the Kenosha shootings took place just nine weeks before the November presidential elections at a time when the left was framing the incumbent Trump as a white supremacist and framing Joe Biden as a healer. The shootings, the shootings were immediately de de declared to be racial, Yet both the shooter Rittenhouse and all of his attackers who were wounded or killed were white. A fourth assailant, an African-American who kicked Rittenhouse while he was on the ground, escaped without injury. What followed in the media was the most egregious example of concocted fictions since the Russian collusion hoax. Kyle Rittenhouse was falsely accused of crossing state lines, plural, while unlawfully armed with an illegal automatic weapon. In truth, he did not buy the, the Smith and Wesson, but pardon me. In truth, he did not buy the Smith and Wesson semi-automatic rifle, much less bring it into nearby Kenosha, Wisconsin, from nearby Antioch, Illinois. It was legal for Rittenhouse to possess and use the firearm. 
The gun itself was not unlawful. He did not purchase it, but had it given to him by a friend. And Kenosha was his alternate home in that it was where his father and other relatives lived. Rittenhouse then was constructed as the proverbial white supremacist of the sort warned about by the likes of Joe Biden, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, and Joint Joint Chiefs Chairman General Mark Milley. At various times during the trial, the prosecuting attorneys called Rittenhouse a coward. They claimed he should have faced the pursuing mob of at least a dozen people and willingly taken a beating from them face-to-face in at least one case at gunpoint. The jury, Andrew Alia, was told that the ongoing arson and other violent acts were not serious crimes and that the three who attacked Rittenhouse were nearly heroic victims. Protesters outside the courthouse tried to intimidate the defense and jurors. A journalist sought to follow the jury bus, ostensibly to divulge their identities to intimidate them. MSNBC was subsequently banned from the courthouse. The pièce de résistance was the lead DA's pointing an empty semi-automatic weapon at the jury with his finger on the trigger, all in the aftermath of Alec Baldwin's accidental shooting with a so-called, supposedly empty loaded gun of two bystanders on a film set. That's right. The DA pointed a gun at the jury with his finger on the trigger. And not just empty, any gun, but a semi-automatic weapon, a rifle. The DA apparently wished to scare the jury into a guilty verdict through the sensation of having a rifle pointed at them. Given the jury appears post facto to have been made up of reasonable people, that puerile gambit probably backfired. Although the imbecilic DA confirmed by his actions with the same recklessness as those in state and city government who had permitted parts of Kenosha to burn in the first place. There were lots of suicidal prosecutorial stunts such as these and what turned out to be a circus of sorts. The DAs also sought to deprecate the constitutionally protected Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. They bizarrely saw their key witness admitting under cross-examination. They had first pointed a handgun at Kyle Rittenhouse, who then understandably fired at him, and they deliberately released an inferior version of the video record of the shooting to the defense while keeping the superior one to their perceived advantage. So, the state's madness raised strange questions. Were the incompetent DAs simply a window into a dysfunctional Kenosha County District Attorney's Office where humbling, pardon me, where bumbling was an institutionalized force multiplier to bias? Were the state prosecutors deliberately inept in order to prompt a mistrial and thus a retrial, second chance of their botched case? Or were they lazily going through the motions to satisfy the mob but did not really believe Rittenhouse was guilty? Or were they just mediocre, camera-hungry, wannabe celebrities who wished to win cheap media attention for as long as the bewildered judge would put up with their bizarre antics? By now, you know, a jury unanimously cleared Rittenhouse of all charges. It apparently concluded correctly that if law enforcement and the state either could not or would not protect lives and property in Kenosha. And if because of that dereliction of duty, some citizens stepped up to take up the role that the police had utterly abandoned, 
Then as citizens, they had a right to defend themselves if attacked by those committing violence. For some time, media demand has exceeded the available supply of clear-cut cases of white oppressors and black victims, at least of the Jussie Smollett hoax, the hands-up-don't-shoot lie, and the Photoshop pictures and edited tapes of George Zimmerman are any, are any indication. Yet the real reason the left strained to gin up the theme of white-on-white violence as an example of racism was their larger agenda of sending a message to middle America, and that is this. No American, in times of riot, arson, and looting, should have the right to use firearms to protect property. And under no circumstances could a citizen use a gun to ward off those intending to maim or kill him. Had Rittenhouse been found guilty, there no longer would be recourse for citizens living in cities where criminals were freely given the streets. In other words, had such a clear-cut case of self-defense morphed into a successful murder conviction, then the most powerful figures in the nation would become the local district attorney. De facto, a DA could empower a mob to loot burn, steal, and injure by refusing to indict those arrested even if an increasingly politicized mayor and police chief chose to allow their officers to keep the public safe. We would then assume that in this state of nature, anyone protecting property during a riot would be fair game for the mob, given the target would know he could become a convicted felon by defending himself from attack. So the left understood well the messaging of attacking the open city, an undefended town of Kenosha, and the conviction of a quote, murderer, unquote, Rittenhouse. Accept our political agenda and our premises, or otherwise your culpable community will be torn apart with impunity and any who choose to combat the violence with violence will be charged with capital crimes. All right? Now, not long after one Rittenhouse was acquitted, One Daryl Brooks Jr., an African-American with a 20-year record of serious felonies, allegedly drove his car deliberately into a Christmas parade in Waukesha, Wisconsin, killing six innocents and injuring over 60. Unlike the dishonest media reaction lying about Rittenhouse, who had no criminal record, there was initial careful restraint not to identify the career criminal Brooks as a murderous driver who weaponized his vehicle against parade goers, despite firsthand accounts from bystanders that the lethal driver was an African-American with dreadlocks, the media, feigning unaccustomed professionalism in this instance, withheld rush to judgment, identification, and culpability. Joe Biden, for a moment, was commendably quiet in editorializing about the racial motivations or or ideology of a suspect. For a while, the media ran with its own concocted rumor that Brooks merely was fleeing from some sort of altercation and apparently had mistakenly turned the wrong way into a crowd, despite videos showing the driver deliberately ramming through street barriers repeatedly to seek out targets, intent likely explains why he killed and injured so many innocents. Finally, the news settled into the present narrative of a so-called car crash, 
as if a driverless vehicle on autopilot had simply bumped into various people in the street before burying the murders altogether on their back pages and dropping the crime from the evening news. Or as the Washington Post put it, here's what we know so far on the sequence of events that led to the Waukesha tragedy caused by an SUV. That media-generated ruse continued even when details of Daryl Brooks Jr.'s lengthy felony record were finally released. At the time he was mowing down strangers, he had five open arrest charges, including two felonies. Brooks had been released on $1,000 bond just two days earlier in another eerie coincidence after being arrested for attempting to run over a woman and her child, the same modus operandi, reified at the Waukesha Christmas slaughter. An alien from Mars who examined Brooks's life of crime, his recent violence, and the ease with which he was seriously, serially let loose upon the public might have concluded some sort of privilege as a cause of exemption. Now, Daryl Brooks Jr. posed on social media as an incompetent but narcissistic rapper, he left a video trail not just of his mediocre recordings, but of clear evidence of virulent anti-Semitism and anti-white racism. Here's a quote from one of his raps. So when we start back knocking white people to F out, I don't want to hear it. The old white people knocked them to F out, period. That, ladies and gentlemen, is Daryl Brooks Jr., as pundits strain to deny any connection between the climate of Black Lives Matter anger over the Rittenhouse verdict and Daryl Brooks Jr.'s murders, Brooks' own testimonies pointed to a connection, at least in the sense of hating people on the basis of their race. Indeed, regional Milwaukee Black Lives Matter activist Vaughn Mays quickly alleged that the Rittenhouse acquittal had earned the homicidal payback. A low-level Democrat functionary tweeted that the dead children of Waukesha were proper karma for Rittenhouse walking free. She said, I'm sad anytime anyone dies. I just believe in karma and this case around and this came around quick on the citizens of Wisconsin. Or as Mays further elaborated, Brooks was an insurrectionist whose violence had jump started a supposed revolution his apparent euphemism for mass murder. Quote, but it sounds possible that the revolution has started in Wisconsin. It started with his Christmas parade, unquote. Brooks is for a while in jail. Yet for some crazy reason, he can be freed on a $5 million bond. He awaits charges of mass homicide, although no one, uh, pardon me, he awaits charges of mass homicide, although one never quite knows. The Milwaukee County District Attorney John Chisholm is a controversial so-called reformer DA, whose campaigns have been funded in part by the George Soros conglomerate. Creepier still, in the past, a prescient John Chisholm had boasted about his own future to the Milwaukee Sentinel, the big newspaper in Milwaukee, namely that his prosecutorial and bail policies would eventually release career criminals onto the street who would inevitably kill some innocent people. He used the word inevitably. Yet he riffed that such carnage was acceptable collateral damage from his decriminalization agendas. Quote, is it going to be an individual 
I divert or I put into a treatment program who's going to go out and kill somebody, you bet. Guaranteed. It's guaranteed to happen. It does not invalidate the overall approach, unquote. One wonders whether Milwaukee DA John Chisholm will take that argument to the families of the Waukesha deceased that the loss of their loved ones was a reasonable sacrifice to ensure that misunderstood 20-year criminals like Daryl Brooks Jr. were not kept behind bars. So what are we left with from these horrors of two cities, Kenosha and Waukesha? In Kenosha, the media and the left ginned up race when there was no such component in the trial, but in Waukesha, they perpetuated racial arson and smothered the truth. That is, they kept largely silent when there clearly was racial hatred. Given Daryl Brooks Jr.'s own record of anti-white and anti-Semitic venom, venom, that is, again, the media can turn from creation to suppression on a dime, given the common theme of ginning up racial strife and hatred, and amoral media and left so far have kept an inconvenient Waukesha so-called car crash out of the mainstream news, reversing their wild, sensational obsessions with Kenosha. After all, in their unhinged, racialized worldview, the demonization of a 17-year-old white male who shot three other white males still could be squeezed for racial juice given the larger contextual landscape of a riot or a police wounding of an African-American male. Now, the shooting of Jacob Blake that set off the Kenosha riots was later determined to be justified given the armed suspect was heading toward his car after fighting with police who were called to the residence to protect a woman who had a restraining order against the career violent felon. In sum, Rittenhouse had no criminal record. All four of his assailants had lengthy arrest records. Three of them were ex-felons. He had no record of the racial hatred of which he was accused. In contrast, Daryl Brooks Jr. was an abject, violent racist whom the media sought to shield, and he was a career felon who both long ago and quite recently should have been kept behind bars so that he would not murder innocent people. How a Wisconsin ex-felon received a $1,000 bail bond and freedom to mow down innocents after trying to run down two with his car before he got the bond while another juvenile without an arrest record with good grounds to claim self-defense was required to post a $2 million bond and so stayed incarcerated pending charges without running water in his cell. Well, that's a commentary on the abject implosion of the American justice system. Rittenhouse should have never been charged. Brooks should never have gotten out of jail. The effort to make the former a beneficiary of white supremacy and the latter a victim of it required a level of amoral media deceit that finally was unsustainable even in this bankrupt age. Now, that is the remarkable Victor Davis Hansen, one of my favorite writers. He has written many columns. He's written many books. But this one today, this one right here, is called A Tale of Two Cities, Kenosha versus Waukesha. And it's over at American Greatness, amgreatness.com. Remarkable, remarkable. Look, um, I want to tell you about the best kept secret in American healthcare. I, uh, 
I made a mistake uh, Friday morning. We had relatives over Thursday evening, and they stayed really late. And I didn't get much sleep Thursday night, Friday morning. And by the time I got up and started moving around, uh, my guys were here to help me produce the podcast. And um, so I need to throw on some clothes and run outside and move my car. And I was still kind of like half asleep trying to back the car out of the driveway. And so I wound up bumping my noggin getting in the car. Well, that's not good. So I've been feeling kind of banged up since then. And I'm probably going to have to uh, get that taken care of sometime this week. Now, if you had done the same kind of thing, because we all make mistakes, um, what, uh, what would you do to take care of it? Would you just take some drugs, some pharmaceuticals, get some prescription to mask the pain, to deal with the symptoms instead of deal with the actual problem? Well, a lot of people would, and that gets me back to what I'm talking about, the best-kept secret, secret in American health care. Let me ask you something. Do you have migraines? Do you have neck pain? Um, back pain, leg pain even. Vertigo. Okay, now look in the mirror. Does one eye look bigger than the other? Are your eyes off balance? Are your shoulders off balance? If the answer to any of these questions is yes, you probably need to get your atlas adjusted. That's how I got rid of my migraines and my neck pain. Let me tell you how it works, because this is the best-kept secret in American healthcare. Your skull weighs anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds. It rests on the top bone of your spinal column. The atlas, which only weighs two ounces, so it's really easy for your atlas to get out of alignment. And you don't have to be in a football injury or an automobile accident or bump your head on something. I mean, you can just like reading in bed at night, propping your uh, head up on your, your, your fist, you know? Anyway, if your atlas gets out of alignment, that little two-ounce bone at the top of your spinal column, your whole spinal column can get kinked up like a chain, restricting your central nervous system's ability to send impulses to the rest of your body. <clears throat> it can affect your respiratory system, your reproductive system, your digestive system, and yes, it can cause migraines and, and neck pain. So do yourself a favor. If you're in central Arkansas, you can call my friends at the Arkansas Upper Surgical Center at 501-279-2009 for a free consultation to see if you need to get your atlas adjusted. If you're anywhere else in the country, just go to their website, turnmypoweron.com, and click on the tab that says Find a Doctor to find someone like this who's close to where you are. And you can thank me later. It is the best-kept secret in American healthcare, and um, these folks have really helped me, my wife, and so many people that we know. Um, I've been under this kind of care in the states of Georgia, Florida, and now Arkansas. And... Uh, I, uh, I vouch for these folks. I really do. They've been a big help. All right, now, uh, that having been said, that having been said, there's a lot more that we, uh, that we need to talk about today. 
So we've got these big trials going on. We've got the Glenn Maxwell trial. We've got the uh, Jesse Smollett trial. We've got a lot going on with uh, Fauci. Again, we have doctors out of South Africa saying, look, this Omicron variant is no big deal. Four vaccinated people in South Africa have mild colds. Oh, by the way, by the way, the World Health Organization, the World Health Organization has well they 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 named the new variants after after figures in the Greek alphabet and they uh, they skipped over one. They skipped over the uh, the Greek letter G spelled X I because obviously it might remind people of Chinese premier Xi Jinping. And frankly, all the variants are G variants as far as I'm concerned, because this all came out of that uh, that lab. All came out of the uh, Wuhan Institute of Virology, and we played for you earlier proof that it was intentional. That the creation of it was intentional. But let's talk for just a second about this new uh, variant out of South Africa for just a moment. The great Ben Shapiro says, let us be clear. To this point, there's not one shred of evidence that Omicron is more deadly than Delta or the original variant. Your public officials are panicking you on the basis of no evidence. Yeah, on the basis of four mild colds, Joe Biden's handlers have shut down travel from eight different African nations, including the big country, South Africa. But they announced it a few days ago. It doesn't go into effect till today. Obviously, it's, it's no actual emergency. Uh, the great columnist, uh, commentator, uh, Bridget Fatassi over there on Twitter says, more infuriating, they're taking it out on Africa. South Africa is being punished for discovering Omicron. After a year of being shut down, livelihoods are again being destroyed. They don't get bailouts. The silence is deafening from the people who screamed xenophobia just last year. And then somebody else who goes by the, uh, the moniker Jules Diner out there on Twitter says, I'm sure it's a total coincidence that South Africa asks to stop receiving vaccines because their citizens don't want them. And now suddenly the World Health Organization tells the world that a highly transmissible variant is coming out of South Africa. Then several highly influential countries reinstate travel bans to the region. Yeah. Yeah, total coincidence. Right? Total coincidence. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you don't yet understand, if you don't yet understand what they're up to, 
and that this has never been about concern about your health. It's all about control. The power and the money, the money and the power. If they're concerned about your health, they would have uh, shut down the southern border and finished building the wall, right? Right? UK Daily Mail, actually the U.S. version of Daily Mail, has a story. Hunter Biden agreed to spread Chinese influence in America for $10 million a year in an $80,000 diamond. And the great Arthur Schwartz, independent columnist, reminds everybody with a uh, clip, a video clip, a very short one, only 17 seconds long, from last year before the election, Jake Tapper had Laura Trump on, and Jake lied to his viewers before the election, saying he didn't know that the Biden family had been accused of taking money from a hostile foreign adversary. See if we can get it to play. Well, that's odd. Let me uh, let me refresh it. Wonder why I won't play. This is called having too many tabs open when you're doing live radio. Okay, now it's playing. Here we go. He did not call the partial travel bans from China and Europe. Perfectly correct. Soft Joe Biden would have shut down travel to China, especially now when we know it's been very lucrative for Joe Biden and his family, China. This president has done everything every step of the way. I don't don't know what that means. It's a novel virus. Yeah, he does. He's a liar. Jake Tapper lies for a living, just like most people on CNN, right? Most people on CNN. Now, you remember the other day we talked about Tucker Carlson's bombshell interview with a Biden business associate named Tony Bobolinsky. And everybody is wondering what happened to Tony Bobolinsky. Well, he's out now again. Tony Bobolinsky, former associate of Hunter Biden, will tell the world there's no question that the big guy is Joe Biden. The great Miranda Devine, who has a book coming out tomorrow that I want to get a copy of, Laptop from Hell. She's out in New York Post this morning. Joe Biden was involved in a deal with a Chinese giant and was expecting a 10% cut. Now again, the great John Cardillo over on Twitter says, he told us before the election, no one listened. Instead, a bought and paid for Chinese asset is sitting in the Oval Office. And that's the truth. Y'all, that's what's up, fam. Not even gonna lie. That's what's up. And so, I don't know how much longer they're going to let me do this. I would not be surprised if big tech eventually, when enough people find out about me, wants to shut me down. And we'll cross that bridge when we come to it, you know. We'll deal with that at the time. But what I do know is that God opened this door for a reason. God closed the door to local talk radio with the second biggest radio company in America, and God opened this door for a reason. 
I'm going to keep on doing this show as long as I'm allowed to. Miranda Devine at New York Post, the article entitled, Joe Biden was involved in a deal with a Chinese giant and was expecting a 10% cut. Um, <clears throat> in a new book, Laptop from Hell, post-columnist Miranda Devine reconstructs the Biden family's quest for cash by using files left on Hunter Biden's abandoned laptop. Sunday, she detailed how Hunter and his uncle, Jim Biden, entered into a deal with Chinese government-linked energy conglomerate CFEC and contacted businessman Tony Bobolinsky to run the enterprise. Here, Bobolinsky meets the big guy, Joe Biden himself. And so she says, Hunter Biden and his uncle Jim were already waiting for Tony Bobolinsky in the lobby bar of the Beverly Hilton when he arrived at 10 p.m. May 2nd, May 2nd, 2017. The Bidens had chosen a discreet couch behind a thick marble column where they could see everyone who walked in the front entrance. Joe Biden, who had left the vice president's office a little more than three months before, was flying into L.A. to speak at the prestigious Millikan Institute Global Conference and will be joining them at the bar within the hour. For 48-year-old Tony Bobulinski, a third-generation Navy veteran and donor to Democrat causes, it would be his first meeting with Joe Biden, and he was conscious that he was being vetted for a trusted role orchestrating the Biden family's existing joint venture with Chinese energy conglomerate CFEC. Hunter wrote in, an, in a message on WhatsApp, Dad not in now until 11. Let's me, you, and Jim meet at 10 at Beverly Hilton where he's staying. When Bob Alinsky arrived at the bar, Uncle Jim, seven years younger than his brother and more heavyset but still a dead ringer for Joe, greeted him like an old friend, although it was the first time they'd met. At that hour, the only other person in the bar was casino operator Steve Wynn, sitting with a woman on the other side of the room. Hunter and Tony Bobolinsky drank water while Jim ordered a club sandwich with fries and explained that the meeting with Joe was strictly high level. Hunter said, We will not go into any detail about the business. I just want my dad to be comfortable with you. At 10.38 p.m., Joe Biden arrived through the hotel's front entrance with his Secret Service entourage, and Hunter jumped up to intercept him. Five minutes later, he brought his father to the table. Tony Bobolinsky stood up to shake Joe's hand. Hunter said, this is Tony, Dad, the individual I told you about that's helping us with the business that we're working on with the Chinese. Joe began by talking about the Biden family, their tragedies, and his political career. <clears throat> Bobolinsky described his background as captain of the Penn State wrestling team and briefly outlined an impressive resume, including as a nuclear engineer and instructor in the Navy's elite nuclear power training command with a high-level security clearance. Joe Biden said, thank you for your service. Thank you for helping my son. Jim Biden and Hunter Biden told Joe that Bobolinsky had been working hard on the Chinese deal, and Joe said, my son and my brother trust you emphatically, so I trust you. Bobolinsky had passed the test. It was a crucial meeting because the first, for the first time, an outsider would see the extent to which Joe Biden was involved in Hunter and Jim Biden's international business. Joe was the final decision maker. Nothing important was done without his agreement. 
Remember he said in the uh, debates with Trump, he never talked to Hunter about his business deals? Huh! The conversation wrapped up within 45 minutes. Joe was tired, but he invited Bobolinsky to meet him again at 8.30 a.m. the next day in the hotel ballroom to hear him speak at the Millican Confab of chief executives, wealthy investors, and fund managers. As soon as he got home, Tony Bobolinsky messaged Jim Biden on WhatsApp at 11.40 p.m., Great to meet you and spend some time together. Please thank Joe for his time. It was great to talk. Thanks. The next morning, Bobolinsky went back to the Beverly Hilton and sat at the head table listening to Joe talk on stage with L.A. billionaire and notorious inside trader Michael Milken. Backstage afterwards, Joe Biden said, What would you think of my speech? They walked outside together to his waiting car and shook hands. Joe told him, keep an eye on my son and brother and look out for my family. Bobolinsky then headed across Santa Monica Boulevard to the Peninsula Hotel to meet Jim Biden, who was sitting alone in a blue and white cabana by the rooftop pool on a glorious sunny day. For two hours, he was regaled with Biden family folklore. Going back to Joe's first Senate election in Delaware in 1972, when Jim, then 23, Dabbling in the nightclub business after dropping out of the University of Delaware became his brother's chief fundraiser. Jim filled in, Jim filled him in on the efforts he and Hunter had made for CEFC the past two years, leveraging Joe's name to advance the Chinese Communist Party's Belt and Road Agenda around the world. The Belt and Road Agenda. The Belt and Road Agenda. You know. Uh, do you ever uh, do you ever know what something means, but you think I better look it up because I don't think I can quite explain it in a way that I'm satisfied with. The Belt and Road Initiative, formerly known as One Belt One Road, is a global infrastructure development strategy adopted by the Chinese government in 2013 to invest in nearly 70 countries and international organizations. is considered a centerpiece of the Chinese leader Xi Jinping's foreign policy. The Belt and Road Initiative forms a central component of Xi Jinping's major country diplomacy strategy, which calls for China to assume a greater leadership role for global affairs in accordance with its rising power and status. It's part of them taking over the world, in other words. That's the plan. Oh, before I forget... Uh, usually about two hours and five or six minutes into the live stream slash podcast, um, Podbean, the app that we use, the platform we use, cuts off the live stream. And uh, there's something about uh, more people have to click that they like the show or something for us to do it longer. I'm not sure how that works. But anyway, if we get cut off on the live stream, uh, you can always go back and listen later or download it later, and the whole thing will be on there. And I apologize for that inconvenience. I try to remember to mention that uh, each day at around uh, two hours into uh, into the live stream because I could keep going for hours. Uh, but anyway, anyway, so <clears throat> Jim filled in Tony Bobolinsky and the efforts he and Hunter had made for the Chinese energy company, CEFC, the past two years, 
before 2017, leveraging Joe Biden's name to advance the Chinese Communist Party's Belt and Road agenda around the world. Basically, the Chinese Communist Party's plan to try to take over the world. Joe Biden is a Chinese asset. If Jake Tapper doesn't know it, he's one of the most ignorant people in television news. He has to know that. Anyway, as Jim Biden talked, Tony Bobulinski marveled at the political risk to Joe Biden's career if his family's flagrant influence peddling during Joe Biden's vice presidency came to light. He finally asked, how are you guys getting away with this? Aren't you concerned that you're going to put your brother's 2020 presidential campaign at risk? You know, the Chinese, the stuff that you guys have been doing already in 2015 and 2016 around the world. Jim Biden chuckled in response and looked knowingly at Bobulinski. He used the words plausible deniability, plausible deniability, using a term coined by the CIA during the Kennedy administration to describe the practice of keeping the president uninformed about illegal or unsavory activity so he can plausibly deny knowing anything if it becomes public knowledge. So that's the same term that uh, Ollie North used about Iran-Contra. Reagan really didn't know. Plausible deniability. Now, Tony Bobulinski understood Jim Biden, meaning that Joe Biden knew what his family was doing in his name but was insulated from the dirty details. It was why Jim and Hunter had instructed Bobulinski the previous night to keep the business talk with Joe at some sort of vague high level. Occasionally, they would let their guard down, but the family was paranoid about keeping Joe Biden's involvement quiet. That's what Bobulinski would be told. He soon learned to decode the euphemisms related to Joe, which made him a dangerous foe three years later when he became so disgusted that he blew the whistle on the whole shady enterprise. In a bombshell statement to the New York Post, Michael Goodwin, on October 22, 2020, a few days after the paper began publishing material from Hunter Biden's laptop, Tony Bobulinski said, I've seen Vice President Biden saying he never talked to Hunter about his business. I've seen firsthand that that's not true because it wasn't just Hunter's business. They said they were putting the Biden family name and its legacy on the line. He said, I don't have a political ax to grind. I just saw behind the Biden curtain and I grew concerned with what I saw. The Biden family aggressively leveraged the Biden family name to make millions of dollars from foreign entities, even though some were communist-controlled China. <clears throat> so less than two weeks after meeting Joe Biden, Bobulinski Incorporated, Sinohawk Holdings, LLC, May 15, 2017 having decided against Hunter's suggestion that they call it CEFC America. It would be a global investment firm seeded with $10 million of Chinese money that will buy projects in the U.S. and around the world in global and or domestic infrastructure, energy, financial services, and other strategic sectors. That's what the contract he had drawn up said. Sinohawk would be 50% owned by Yi Jianming, chairman of CEFC, through a Delaware Incorporated CEFC entity, Hudson West IV LLC. The other 50% will be owned by Oneida Holdings LLC, another Delaware firm set up by Bobulinski. Oneida will be split according to an email 
sent by James Gilliard to the group on May 13, 2017, laying out the distribution of shares. Gilliard, listing the shares and percentages, wrote, the equity will be distributed as follows. 20% for Hunter, 20% for Rob Walker, who, by the way, lives in Little Rock, Arkansas, last I heard. 20% for James Gilliard, 20% for Tony Bobulinski, 10% for Jim Biden, and 10% held by Hunter for the big guy. Three years later, Bobulinski would tell the world that there is no question that the big guy is Joe Biden. He said, Hunter Biden called his dad the big guy or my chairman and frequently referenced asking him for his sign-off or advice on various potential deals that we were discussing. Joe was called the big guy in other emails on Hunter's laptop or in WhatsApp messages on Bobulinski's phones. Gilliar warned Bobulinski in a WhatsApp message on May 20th, 2017, about the need for discretion about Joe's role. He said, don't mention Joe being involved. It's only when you are face-to-face. I know you know that, but they are paranoid. Bobulinski, already frustrated by Hunter's demands, replied, okay, they should be paranoid about things. Now, that is in the New York Post this morning from Miranda Devine. It's an excerpt with permission from her new book, Out Tomorrow on Post Hill Press, Laptop from Hell, Hunter Biden, Big Tech, and the Dirty Secrets the President Tried to Hide. Wow. Wow. I'm going to have to get a hold of that. I'm going to have to get a hold of that. Definitely. All right, uh, that having been said, I got a couple other things I got to I got to share with you before we get out of here. Um today is the 20th anniversary of CIA officer Johnny Mike Spann. First American killed in Afghanistan after 9/11. Toby Harnden, author of the recently released book, First Casualty, said Mike Spann died fighting using his Kalashnikov rifle and Glock pistol to kill the enemy as he was overwhelmed. As a tragic bookend to the 20-year conflict, 11 Marines were among the 13 service members killed at Kabul airport during the August evacuation, most of whom had been babies when Mike Spann was killed. Okay, I apologize. Thursday, Thanksgiving Day, was the 20th anniversary of the murder of Johnny Michael Spann. Spann's story is truly heroic. As William A. Jacobson over at Legal Insurrection noted in his first post about Spann on May 3rd, 2011, called Remembering Johnny Mike Spann, he said, hearing the news of Osama bin Laden's death brought forward many emotions and memories. One of those memories for me was the story of Johnny Mike Spann from Winfield, Alabama, the first American killed in the Afghanistan war, November 25th, 2001. Spann was a CIA operative. One of a small number of Americans who landed in Afghanistan helped coordinate local forces hostile to the Taliban and directed bombing and other military action. The story of this small band of men has been told, but not told enough. Span was killed during the Battle of Kala Ijangi, 
when Taliban prisoners gained access to weapons and attacked. Spam was killed during that uprising. One of the prisoners was a so-called American Taliban, John Walker Lind, who Spann interrogated shortly before Spann's death. Spann's wife, Shannon, also worked for the CIA. In addition to his wife, Spann left behind two daughters and an infant son. So in these days in which we remember those who died on 9-11, let's also remember Johnny Mike Spann, who died in the weeks immediately after 9-11 on the battlefield far from home, and who again and who against seemingly impossible odds helped pave the way for the overthrow of the Taliban, and over nine years later, the justice delivered two days ago. Each year since then, we have, um, uh, and that was two days after Osama bin Laden was killed. He says, each year since then, we have a memorial post about Johnny Mike's band updating new information about what happened in Afghanistan leading to his death and how his family has held up, and they uh, they link to a lot of posts. I'll I'll put that all on my uh, my Facebook page. But he was an American hero. No question about it. I wonder if any movies will ever be made about Johnny Mike Spann. Okay, um, another update. This is something you need to hear about, and probably won't because they'll act like it's just a local crime story. In Oakland, California. A security guard is murdered, another assaulted as flash mob robbers turn deadly. Retired police officer Kevin Nishida was killed after being shot by an assailant who attempted to steal television station KRON4's news equipment as they filmed from the scene of a flash mob looting incident in Oakland, California. Though the so-called experts, and, and, and by the way, a big shout-out to Stacey Matthews over at LegalInsurrection.com on this. The so-called experts suggest people shouldn't call flash mob looting looting because it's allegedly only used to describe people of color or urban dwellers. We're engaging in such behavior. It's not. That is indeed exactly what's been happening at an elevated level, especially in states like California over the last couple of weeks. Unfortunately, things took violent and deadly turns last week when security guard Kevin Nishida who was providing armed security for KRN4 on behalf of Star Protection Agency, was shot Wednesday as an assailant tried to steal the news crew's equipment while they were filming from the scene of a prior flash mob looting incident in downtown Oakland. Sadly, Nishida died early Saturday morning. The victim, Kevin Nishida, leaves behind a wife, two children, three grandchildren. Nishida works as an armed guard for Star Protection Agency prior to working as a guard he served as a police officer of the Oakland Housing Authority, Hayward, California Police, San Jose Police, and the Colma Police Departments. A reward of 32500 being offered for information that leads to an arrest. Understandably, KRON4 reporters were devastated as their law enforcement officers who Nishida worked with in the past. Will Tran, reporter over KRON4, had a picture of him and he said, Kevin Nishida, he was our friend. He was an officer and a gentleman in every sense of the word. I literally texted him yesterday telling him, if he needs anything, let me know. This isn't fair. There are killers still out there who ripped him from his family. Maureen Kelly, Karen Four, links to an article about the killing, says, words cannot express my heartbreak. Kevin Nishida was a good man who took his job seriously. He kept me and my colleagues safe. He did not deserve this. He and his family will 
be forever in my prayers. The Coma California Police Department says it is the great sadness that we announced the passing of retired Sergeant Kevin Ishida. On November 24, 2021, Kevin was shot while providing security as an armed guard in Oakland. He was rushed to a local hospital for medical attention and succumbed to his injuries this morning. Alameda County Sheriff's Office tweeted this out. We mourn the loss of retired police officer Kevin Ishida, who honorably served our Bay Area community. He was protecting, guarding a local news crew when he was senselessly murdered. Today, we escorted his body from the hospital with full law enforcement honors. The Oakland Police Department has released a photo of the alleged vehicle involved in the shooting, which they hope will help them catch the killer. Um, Jonathan McCall, reporter over there, says, Breaking Oakland Police just released his picture of the car believed to be involved in the murder of Karen for news guard Kevin Ishida. And they talk about the uh, reward. Now standing at 32500 In another violent incident, a security guard was assaulted Wednesday after a flash mob of looters crashed a Nordstrom's department store at Topanga Mall in Los Angeles. The attack happened around 6.45 p.m. Wednesday when a group of five suspects committed a smash and grab at the Nordstrom store and ran out with items that included about seven or eight Expensive purses. At least one of the suspects was described as wearing an orange wig. They assaulted and used bear spray on a security guard during the robbery, police say. Security guard was treated by paramedics, suspected to be okay. Suspects fled in a newer model gray Ford Mustang. So um, there's a lot that's going on. And it's being encouraged in California. It's being encouraged anywhere it's being encouraged, let me repeat, anywhere that um, that prosecutors are soft on crime. Anywhere that they don't take prosecuting crime seriously. All right, um... <clears throat> Talked about the Epstein situation earlier today. And before I get out of here, I want to share with you commentary by the great Steve Cortez over at Newsmax. Except I don't know if he's still over at Newsmax because um, we're hearing reports that Newsmax is doing the same thing that happened to me at Cumulus Media, which is enforcing a vaccine mandate. And Steve Cortez is like, no, I'm not going to get it. And so I don't know if he's still at Newsmax or not waiting for, for official official com, uh, confirmation on that. What I do know is, a couple of years ago, the great Steve Cortez, who may or may not still be at Newsmax, wrote a commentary over at Real Clear Politics called Media Malfeasance at ABC News and Beyond. This is November 11th, 2019. And Steve Cortez writes, Last week, the fake news operatives of our corporate media complex, particularly ABC News, revealed through their duplicity their duplicity that they thoroughly deserve President Trump's denigration as the enemy of the people. Far too many American media practitioners today forsake journalism in favor of narrative promotion. Indeed, 
They consistently show themselves to be a cabal of groupthink resistance advocates masquerading as reporters. The tapes released in early November 2019 by Project Veritas revealed not only the stark hypocrisy of ABC News, but also the rank depravity of that organization for apparently covering up for a serial sexual abuser of young girls and perhaps for the powerful friends, for his powerful friends as well, making matters worse from a journalistic angle. Both Amy Robach, the reporter involved with ABC News, and her employer issued absurd statements attempting to deflect scrutiny of this clear ethical breach. In the hot microphone clip, the Good Morning America co-host and 2020 co-anchor bemoans, quote, I've had this story for three years. We, speaking of ABC, would not put it on the air, unquote. Speaking of her Jeffrey Epstein expose, she continues, quote, it was unbelievable. We had Clinton. We had everything, unquote. Amy Robach, ABC News, also implicates a British royal, stating she had, quote, whole, alleg- whole allegations about Prince Andrew, unquote, and that when the palace threatened ABC, the network buckled, in part, to ensure future access to Kate Middleton and Prince William. Amy Robach also asserts that, quote, Jeffrey Epstein was the most prolific pedophile this country has ever known, unquote. In her post-release explanation for these assessments, Amy Robach tried to dismiss the tape as a, quote, private moment of frustration, unquote. First, it certainly was not private. She was a two-decade TV veteran, mic'd up, on camera, apparently conversing with several people in an ABC studio. This episode involved no hidden recordings or subterfuge. Secondly, regarding her so-called frustration, how about considering the angst and lifetime scars carried by the victims of Jeffrey Epstein? According to Amy Robach, her own information on this case would have validated their accusations years before the Miami Herald finally brought the case to wider exposure, leading to new charges against Epstein. ABC's corporate statement was an even worse affront to believability and to journalistic ethics. The network claimed that, quote, not all of our reporting met our standards to air, unquote. Really, ABC? Were these rigorous newsroom standards to air employed when ABC rushed to broadcast the exclusive tear-drenched interview of MAGA country scam artist Jussie Smollett without any verification of his inane claims? By the time that embarrassing fable aired, staffers at ABC already doubted Smollett's version, as did every reporter who bothered to spend two minutes talking to Chicago police sources. But alas, ABC put the narrative front and center, irrespective of the evidence. The idea of phantom MAGA thugs, good luck finding such creatures in my hometown of Chicago, by the way, beating and denigrating a gay black actor proved too confirming of ABC's bias to resist running the ludicrous interview. Steve Cortez continues. But placing narrative before facts sadly forms a bit of tradition at ABC. Consider, for example, its 2017 so-called bombshell report that General Michael Flynn would testify that candidate Trump instructed him to contact Russia during the heat of the election. Instead, the network had to backtrack completely and concede the Flynn overture occurred after the election when Trump was president-elect and very properly reaching out to governments globally, in this case, a sequencing gaffe, is hardly immaterial. So why did ABC quash the Jeffrey Epstein story? The only honest answer so far is that we just do not know. We do not, but we do know, but we do know that A.B. Robach's 
clear confession slash rant, plus the network's own history, strongly suggests that arduous fact-checking was not the real reason. The obvious suspicion is that ABC wanted to protect powerful people, most especially the Clintons. One does not have to be a conspiracy nutter to believe that we still need to learn a lot more about Jeffrey Epstein's life and death. We also know that if ABC ever wants to be taken seriously as a news organization, it must eschew the present tactics of wagon circling and instead take a brutal look inward at how the fiasco unfolded. On a wider scale, traditional media outlets outside of ABC also seem unwilling to grapple with a news suppression scandal. For example, according to Fox News, as the outrage permeated social media in early November of 2019 after the video release that morning, that Tuesday morning from noon Eastern time until midnight, there was no mention of the tape at all on MSNBC, CBS, or NBC. Now on CNN, there was zero on-air coverage all week long, all the way through Sunday when CNN aired a show specifically dedicated to covering the news media. The reticence of even competitors to discuss a story unmasks the kind of groupthink that pre presently poisons so much of corporate media. Narrative conformity, it seems, prevails over the healthy, spirited desires to outperform competitors and, when appropriate, highlight their ethical lapses. Such unanimity proves to Americans that the media in the age of Trump act far more like opposition clique than hustling truth seekers. Reflective of this unnatural fraternity, CBS, in early November of 2017, pardon me, 2019, even fired Ashley Bianco, a former ABC News employee whom that network suspected of leaking the damaging Amy Robach footage. But Bianco did nothing wrong at CBS, denies the ABC leak allegation, and the head of Project Veritas insists that the real informant remains employed at ABC. As deleterious as a crisis in journalism is for our country, it does also represent political opportunity for President Trump. Again, remember Steve Cortez wrote this in 2019, November 2019. He says, fair-minded American voters will rally again to a scrappy fighter they can plainly see being harassed by a biased press. Plus, the media remain intractably unpopular. A 2018 Axios poll found that 70% of Americans believe traditional news outlets purposefully publish fake or misleading stories. An earlier Associated Press survey showed that only 6% of Americans view the press with a great deal of confidence. Therefore, I urge the president to keep pushing back on corporate media. Trump is the Floyd Mayweather of politics, the consummate counterpuncher. Like money Mayweather, Trump can repel the opposition media attacks to win re-election. Well, he did win re-election. It was stolen from him. It drives people crazy when I say that, but it's true. And anyone and everyone, anyone and everyone who has looked at the evidence knows I'm telling the truth. So I needed to share that with you from uh, Steve Cortez. Um, real quickly, Cheryl Ackerson, um shares an excerpt from an article over at Medscape, some 30% of healthcare personnel 
who worked at the thousands of hospitals in the United States were still not fully vaccinated against COVID-19. I like to call it the Wu flu or the China virus as of mid-September, according to a new survey by the CDC. The snapshot in time, January 20th, 2021 to September 15th, 2021, is based on voluntary weekly reports from hospitals. Overall, the number who were fully vaccinated rose from 36% in January 2021 to 60% in April 2021, then crept slowly up to 70% by September 15th, according to the CDC research report in the American Journal of Infection Control. The slowdown among hospital workers seems to mirror the same decline as in the general population. Yeah, 30% of doctors and nurses don't want the vaccine. Wonder why? Wonder why? You ever thought about that? I'm not getting it. I'm not getting it. Anyway, um, I, I, I feel like, you know, I feel like we just started. I feel like we just scratched the surface. But at some time, we got to wind it up. And this would be that time for today. You've been listening to episode 34 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy. This has been a terribly messy production. Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. If you'd like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, simply peel the roof off a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansour's Computer Solutions, 7th floor of the Ephemeral B. Smoot Building, Whitehall, Arkansas, in case in care of, i got to get this right, in care of Sheriff Mansour Sempier the 10th. And that's the way it is, Monday, November 29th, 2021.